Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host. My name is Jared St. Clair. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. I have two guests, not just one, and they have a uh, similar story, I'll say. I'm sure there's differences. We're going to find out what those are here in a minute. But they live within about 40 minutes of each other in Michigan. And uh, we're going to talk, We're going. I'm going to get both stories uh, here from uh, Stacey uh, Ogrinzik. Did I say okay. that right? Okay. You did. All right. And uh, Sarah Mitchell, uh, welcome both of you to Dearly Discarded Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So, of course, this podcast is always about getting the stories out that need to be told that are oftentimes squashed on social media or don't make the papers or the local news, that kind of thing. I don't know what type of um, uh, censorship either of you have experienced, but I would like you to uh, maybe address that a little bit while I'm asking you these questions. But we're going to go ahead and start with Stacy. Uh, Stacy, your husband, Ryan, uh, is uh, this, it's his story that you're going to tell or your joint story, I guess, since you've uh, lived it. Um, and I'm not going to ask any questions other than just tell the story. And then I might uh, dig in a little bit uh, with a few details as you go. Uh, all righty. Uh, yeah, my, my husband, uh, Ryan, uh, went into a hospital uh, in Beaumont, went to Beaumont in Mich that was in Michigan uh, when he had a mild case of pneumonia. Um, and he, according to him, was never tested for COVID, uh, but they had talked about putting him on a COVID protocol. And um, he, we told him right away at the hospital, no remdesivir, do not want to be on a ventilator right away, none of that. Uh, my husband was very persistent not to be on remdesivir because he had heard about the horrible side effects and risks to it. Um, and uh, before he went into the ER, like I was really nervous about them possibly trying to push the protocols because I didn't know if those were still going on in the hospitals. We weren't hearing as much about COVID cases in Michigan at that time, um, so I wasn't really sure if they were still persistent on it or not. Um, but uh, I, in the car, I was telling him I was really nervous about him going in because his oxygen wasn't really that bad. It was ranging between 89-94%. If he was doing something really active, it would get to 89 But otherwise, if he wasn't moving as much, it was staying in the mid-90s. So um, I didn't think he needed to go in, but he was scared, never feeling that chest tightness before, um, and wanting to go in and get a simple steroid shot is what he thought. And we were picking up his home meds, uh, which would have consisted of even ivermectin that following Monday, a day later. Uh, but he said, no, I'll go to the hospital, get a steroid shot. It'll help me get through the night. Um, I was nervous about it, but he told me I was being paranoid. And one of his last comments was, I'm an American. I have the right to refuse what goes in my body. Um, and I, we didn't know that that would not be the case once you go in there. Uh, so when he was in, they started to give him sedatives. Um, and my husband's never been on like anti-anxiety medications. My husband's not a very anxious person, like the most calm and mellow person there is. Um, and we didn't know that those would have been oxygen suppressants for one. Um, and so he was given that. I knew something was off because he kept talking a little bit loopy every now and then. And he kept saying that something was making him feel delusional. Uh, but we didn't really pinpoint it to the Xanax and Presidex and things they were giving him when he came in. Um, and he, um, a few days into the, after being there at the ER, they started to tell me they were watching his kidneys closely. Um, 
And I said to them, you know, did they give him remdesivir because uh, that was on his chart not to give him that? He said no, and they wouldn't ever answer me. They wouldn't give me a direct answer. They would tell me that they have to look into his chart to see that answer, and it's not in front of them. I have to wait and have a doctor call me back, and a doctor would never call. Or I get a doctor, and they would tell me they didn't know. Um, and I would, my husband didn't know what he was on, um, but he kept telling me that he woke up with an IV in his arm, so he was knocked out to be given an IV, and they still kept persisting that they were watching a kidney closely, that one of them showed signs of distress, and then it wasn't until the weekend uh, that I got a new nurse on the phone, and so I approached it differently instead of sounding combative and angry that they might be giving him remdesivir. I talked to her and I said, hey, you know, I heard about this new drug called remdesivir and I heard it's pretty um, pretty good with treating COVID patients. Is there any way that we can see if my husband has been given that or see if he can get it? And when I approached it like that, she's like, oh, let me look in his chart. Oh, yeah, he got that as soon as he came in. So then that's how we found out that he was on it. <clears throat> and sure enough, um, shortly after two weeks or going into the second week, that's when he was starting to go into renal failure. Um, my husband never knew how bad that was, um, and how bad his kidneys were because I started to push the vent just before. And my husband was texting me, showing me that he was doing better, and in his opinion, um, that he had his oxygen completely off. He was wearing two face masks, sitting in a chair. They had him up moving around. He was trying to stay moving to break up the pneumonia in his lungs. Uh, and he, um... They were, nurses were telling him that he was going to go on a step-down unit. And yet at the same time, at 2 in the morning, I had a doctor call me the first time, tried to tell me to convince my husband to go on a ventilator. And I said, I'm not going to do that. His oxygen is improving. Why would I tell him to do that? And he said, we need to tell him so he can give his body rest. And I said, no, that's the, I'm not doing that. Like, when do we put people on ventilators and life support for giving their body rest when he can breathe? Um, and he got mad and irritated and um, told me I needed to think about it and hung up. And then my husband texts me again in the evening, around 3.30ish, I get a text and he screenshotted his monitor and showed me he was at a 98% pulse ox and um, told me he was feeling better and that I brought up about the doctor that was trying to persuade him to go on the vent and he said that there was one nurse there pushing the vent and that he had told her no way in hell am I going on a vent don't bring it up again um, and at the same time that that text was coming in a doctor was on the phone with me again same guy told me I needed to convince my husband again to go on a vent I said I'm not gonna do that when his oxygen is normal and I never told him that I was getting a screenshot of my husband's oxygen uh, but I knew that my husband was doing better, and that's what I told him. And he said, well, then, to be honest with you, I got to tell you that we told your husband that we're going to vent him with or without his, his consent. And I said, that's illegal. And as soon as I said that, he slammed the phone down on me. And then I could not get a hold of nobody after that. All text messages stopped from my husband. I couldn't get no one to, to take my call. When I called up there, they told me all doctors were busy or nurses were in isolation. There was just no communication at all anymore. And I'm frantically texting my husband, like, you know, the doctor called me again. I told him, no, don't believe him. You need to sign yourself out. And there was just nothing. And um, they called, that same doctor called me two hours later to let me know that they had vented him and that they had done it. And so they never even let me talk to him before they did such a thing. Um, and when I got my husband's phones, um, 
week later they finally let me in over 21 days of being kept away from him and now will let me on a COVID floor only now that he's vented before it was too dangerous for me to be on a COVID floor but now that he can't speak and tell his side of story what happened um, now I can be up there 12 hours a day there was no PPE required for me to be in uh, nurses would come into his room with their masks to their chins like they would uh, you know look like they were relieved to see that you know I wasn't wearing mine so they would pull their their mask down um, and here I am I get in there and I grab his uh, his phones and got his belongings wedding ring and stuff like that and um, it was not until I charged his phones later at home that I had seen that um, he even talked about being given a sedative that day that they thought would help him feel better and so I knew that they were preparing him from the get-go for what they were going to do. They already had their mindset that they were going to vent him that day. Um, and when I was in there, he opened his eyes for me. Uh, this is after the doctor had already lied to me and told me that he had he vented my husband because my husband's pulse oxygen was at 40%. While I have the screenshot of him showing he's at 98 Um and then he told me that, uh, you know, there was likely that my husband would be brain damaged from lack of oxygen, all this stuff they were scaring me with. And when I got in there, he opened his eyes for me. And um, I asked him if he could hear me to raise his eyebrows because I knew he was making facial expressions. He had no movement of his arms because of the paralytics they had him on, uh, but he could move his face. So I said, can you raise your eyebrows for me? And he did. Oh, and I, I gasped, thinking, oh my gosh, he's mentally aware. He understood what I said, so there's no damage like they're telling me and scaring me. And I told him that I loved him, and he raised his eyebrows again. And I told him I was fighting for him. And then uh, he felt his vent with his tongue, and he shook his head no, like an angry no. And then I said, Ryan, can I ask you some questions? Can, um, can you raise your eyebrows up for yes and down for no? And as soon as the nurse had heard me say that, she went from going to leave his room to rushing back to his monitor and saying, we need to up his sedation. And she upped it and it takes like seconds and he was back out. And they never allowed him to come off of that sedation to carry a conversation with me again. Um, and then, uh, so I started asking these nurses, you know, I started to pay attention to his monitor and his IV setup and I see him on saline he was given a six milligram steroid every 12 hours, and that's less than I take for asthma. And I can take even a, like five times the strength of that every two to four hours. I'm like, why is he given a pediatric dose steroid every 12 hours? What is that going to do for him and his condition? And I'm seeing he's on saline, his food, and then propofol and fentanyl that was like it that he's on so i said well what is it that he's on during this covid protocol that's going to help him come off of this vent and she looked at me and said well nothing but it's all we're allowed to give him and i was like so you're telling me he's not going to get better and you're just you're okay with that and she said well it's due to politics controlling our healthcare system and like I was just going to come to terms with sitting here letting my husband die so that they can just obey their orders. Uh, I had a doctor come in and tell me uh, that they thought might help me get to be able to use his home meds because I was really fighting at the time then once they told me that. Okay, well, let's try something else. Why can't we try something else? You show me a reason why we can't. So I started to try to look for his patient rights at the hospital and then his rights, he had rights to use his home meds. So I was fighting for that. So they brought me in this doctor. His name was Dr. Sharba. 
and they thought he would be one to help me. And I was sitting next to my husband's bedside and um, this doctor came in and he told me um, that he would love to give him ivermectin and a proper dose steroid. He thinks it would help him and that he would give it to his own children if they were sick. Then he said, however, due to politics controlling our healthcare system, my hands are tied and I have to think of my livelihood and my paycheck first. And when he said that, I turned and I looked at my husband's monitor and I could see his sedation level was dropped and his blood pressure was rising and his heart rate was going up and I knew he heard that. And so when I knew that he heard it, it was like an anger came over me thinking how scary that must be in his situation. You can't move and you can't talk, but you just heard that come out of a doctor's mouth. So I looked at that doctor and I just said to him, you know, this Christmas while you're with your family, I want you to picture me sitting here beside my livelihood begging you, a doctor who took an oath of do no harm, to put my husband's life above your damn paycheck. And he, uh, he just put his head down and, and closed his eyes and he went to go say something else and I put my hand up to him and said, you know, I don't want to hear anymore. And I proceeded to shame the nurses for their compliance and all of this and standing there and hearing what he just said and then having nothing to say back, um, that they were just as guilty. So after that exchange, um, the next day I had a hospital administrator come in with a police officer and asked me to go into a back room down the hall and proceeded to tell me that they didn't like my attitude in the hospital, that I was affecting the nurse's ability to give care. And I, uh, <laughs> I said, well, what, can you give an example of what you're referring to? And then they brought up the conversation with Dr. Sharba. And I said, oh, so um, then you're referring to the part where the doctor told me he had to think of his own livelihood and paycheck first. Uh, what would your response have been that would have been better than what I had to say? And she got real quiet and took some notes. And then they changed uh, gears and tried to say that they had record of a nurse reporting seeing me going into other patients' rooms, and that's a safety violation. And I wanted to, um, first I was like combative, like that's not true. Why would I be going into anyone else's room? I, have no one, I don't know anyone else here in the hospital. And in the moment I went to go say, well, then show me on film where I've done that because there's cameras in my husband's room, there's cameras in the hallways. Um, you have to get buzzed into the ICU. I thought as soon as I went to say, you know, show me the video proof of it, it dawned on me then what they were really saying because obviously if I was a person that did that, I would have been out of there right there on the spot because obviously that would be a safety issue for everybody. And um, so what they were trying to tell me was that, you know, if you don't sit down and be quiet and accept our protocols, that that's going to be our story and that's going to prevent you from seeing your husband again until we're done with him. So they were setting up a form of blackmail. Um, and then she, so I stopped myself from talking and then she paused and she looked at me and said, um, have I taken any pictures of my husband inside his room? And do I have an attorney working with me? Those were her two questions. And I was, <laughs> I was so taken back and I, I looked at her and said, um, well, I refuse to answer either of those questions. And I looked at the officer and said, if I'm not being detained, then I'm free to go. And I will like to go back to my husband right now. And he looked at her like, I can't stop her or make her answer this. So I just took off and went back to my husband's room. Um, and I thought, did they do that to get me away so they could do something to him? Um, and as I came back into the room, uh, one of the nurses stopped me. I think she was a nurse's aide. And she had stopped me and tried to motion for me like to come off camera. 
and she had told me that room 17 was fighting for their rights to use their home meds and that they were suing the hospital. And um, so I was in the process of doing the same and I had a New York attorney working with me um, trying to fight for Ryan's legal right to try and, and use his home meds. And I didn't tell her that because we were supposed to kind of keeping that on the down low at the time. So I just said, well, how's that going? And she said, well, to be honest with you, the administrators told us that us nurses are to work to get them out faster. And I was like, out faster? What does that mean? Like dead or alive faster? And the nurse shrugged her shoulders like, you didn't hear it from me and gave me a look like that. And it just sent chills up my spine. Like, you know, are they threatening that they're going to harm Ryan if I'm pursuing legal action? Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe they're just trying to feel me out to see what I'm doing because they just asked me if I had an attorney and if I, you know, had taken any photos. So then I thought, well, no, they may be just trying to pressure me into not going that route. So I brushed it off, let it go, and continued my fight. Um, because I did not win in court for his right to try, um, I went and decided to become my best own best attorney and started just calling every doctor in the hospital that I could. And... I happened to find a doctor um, who was a critical care team doctor, former lung specialist, um, and he uh, decided, he said that he knew about ivermectin helping patients, um, and he followed a lot of the frontline doctors, and he told me that if I found support in the hospital, that he would go ahead and give my husband the ivermectin and put him on the frontline doctor protocol and that he thought would help him because he said what they're giving him is not going to help him get better. He even said it himself. Um, and so I had him check to see if the if there was anything in the, he wanted to check and make sure there's nothing in the policy that, that said he can't do it. Where does his job stand if he should break uh, protocol? Um, I even, I called up patient relations. Patient relations had told me that there's nothing in a hospital policy that says a doctor can't break the protocol and use ivermectin or a proper steroid, uh, that they would not lose their job if they were to break it. And they, when I even asked, can I read the protocol, come, our policy, hospital policy, found out that it doesn't even exist. There's nothing they can print. There's no link to it. But all these doctors and nurses are fear of breaking it and will obey it. But there, it doesn't even exist. It's actually like a, a black hole somewhere. There's no, no, nothing to print of hospital policy. Um, and the doctor had found that out when he was doing his research and found there was nothing in policy that says that. And when I had found him doctors, like including the chief of staff, chief medical officer, and other doctors um, that supported him, he was on board. And the nurses even gathered around him and said, we got your back in this. you got to do this for her. And one nurse even printed up documents on ivermectin helping COVID patients and people with respiratory issues um, and gave it to me and said, if any doctors give you a hard time and um, this not working, here are credible research studies on it. And, um, and they encouraged me to continue to fight for Ryan. And we did, the doctor ordered then 76 milligrams of ivermectin and a steroid that was nine times the strength of anything on their protocol. And um, he decided to put Ryan on it the next day. We got Ryan on it, um, even though the pharmacy tried to resist it. The pharmacy tried to keep it from coming up. And the chief of staff had to get involved and threaten the pharmacy to that if they didn't bring it up in 20 minutes, he was going to come down there and raise some holy heck. <laughs> um, so they decided to 
bring it up reluctantly. They were pretty mad. They brought up the ivermectin um, and uh, the nurse, I got to watch the nurse give it to him. I said I wanted to be there every night to watch to make sure he was being administered it. And they, they made arrangements for me to stay long enough for them to do that because they were trying to push it to be given after visiting hours, probably so they could say they just did it and then never have done it. So the pharmacy, I think, was headed towards, um, but the doctor made sure that I was allowed to stay there to watch it being done every night. Um, and so that first night, um, less than 24 hours, his blood oxygen went from a low 61, 64% to 100% in less than 24 hours. And I was told that I would see the biggest change and biggest improvement in the first 24 hours, and they weren't kidding. Um, so then he started to come off the vent more and more every day. Every day was an improvement. Um, the doctor thought in three or four more days he might be coming off the vent completely. Uh, he was starting to hold his own for the first time where his blood pressure and heart rate wasn't affected as he was being we as he was there weaning him off of the vent, whereas before he would, um, they call it like double stacking and trying to fight against the vent. Um, but they, uh, um, he was having no issues as they were bringing him off it while he was on ivermectin and the steroid. And day four, two infectious disease doctors came in. Um, it was a Dr. Hannity Das, a woman doctor, and then Dr. James Sundstrom, who is the head of infectious disease there. They, which I heard he never comes up on that floor, but he did for Ryan. So they came up on that floor just to revoke him, revoke the doctor's meds, which broke then doctor-patient rights. Um, and they went and they revoked it. And she, the Dr. Doss had gone and put it in the computer notes that they don't allow veterinarian meds to be given to patients. And they, uh, it breaks hospital policy. Both of those are a lie false accusations. I mean, it was a human dose of ivermectin. She obviously knew that, so she was just being very purposely ignorant and rude. Um, and then uh, uh, it doesn't break policy because I had already confirmed that with patient relations. Um, so they revoked it, and then she signed herself off his case like a hit and run. And my husband's health started to decline. He was going downhill pretty quickly. And um, getting worse and worse as the hours went on, like because after about 24 hours and his body wasn't having the next round, he was starting to go downhill, starting to go back up on needing the vent. Everything was going bad. And he's, I came in and found him sweating profusely, but he had no fever. And so when I came back in, I knew something was wrong. And uh, the nurse that was working on him was a new nurse, very sharp with me, like, very rude to, from the get-go. Um, me and her had a few words in the beginning because she wasn't informing me of why my husband's oxygen was dropping like severely, the worst I've ever seen it. Um, and it, since I got kind of loud with her and angry with her, she had called security up there. I almost got thrown out that day. Um, and then uh, I had contact with the doctor because she wasn't telling me what was happening to my husband. So I had contacted the doc good doctor that was fighting for him and I said something's wrong with Ryan these are his side effects you know this is what's happening to him symptoms and he knew right away my husband was going through a cytokine storm and he told the nurse that if we don't do something drastic we're going to lose lose Ryan tonight um, so they he made the plans for Ryan to go back on the same um, good protocol and my husband made it through the night started to get better his oxygen went back up I left for four hours because I thought, okay, he's, he's stable. There's a, 
uh, nurse now in here that's been in ICU for 40 years. I feel safe to leave him. So I ran home to go feed my pets, jump in the shower, and in that time, the head of the ICU doctor, Dr. Uh, Kierbeck, had taken my husband off of the steroid cold turkey um, just and because it's not part of protocol. And the good doctor had told him that if you do this, you're going to kill Ryan. And he didn't care. He was just obeying orders. It was about protecting his paycheck. Um, so the good doctor had told me that as he went to one of his uh, yoga classes, he was just so stressed, couldn't get his heart rate to calm down. He was so stressed, kept thinking about my husband and what danger he was in. So I got a hold of the chief of staff, and I told the chief of staff that you need to fire Kierbeck off my husband's case effective immediately to not let him go back into my husband's room um, to make sure that he is back in the care of this good doctor um, that we had assigned for him and that we put our trust in. And um, the, the chief of staff got the Dr. Kierbeck to concede off my husband's case, and then I, apparently he had a plan, and I didn't know this till much later, but he had a plan to put the good doctor as head of ICU starting that Monday. We were going into the weekend, but that Monday he was going to have him be head of ICU for the full week. So it would be him in charge of my husband's care and his team. And so we had to go through that horrible weekend, um, just coming off of the holidays, really hard to get a hold of any help. And um, before Monday... The hospital had maxed my husband out on fentanyl and propofol. Um, looking at some of his medical records, it looked like he was getting somewhere around 250 micrograms of fentanyl around every 20 minutes. Um, and uh, we, he, everything was just upped, like more, way more than what they've ever given him. And I got the call at 3 in the morning on that Monday from the good doctor telling me I need to come down there that he thought we were losing Ryan. And he had told me that... Uh, um, I needed to come down there really quickly. So I called his parents and we made plans to come down. They were down there in like third, less than 30 minutes. And um, I, looking back, I know now from the time that that doctor was there with Ryan, had assessed Ryan and called me, told me that he didn't even sleep through the night, that he just must have just went there because you don't really live that close to, to the Beaumont Hospital. So I know he must have knew Ryan's life was in danger and knew that they'd probably put out all stops to stop him from being in charge. So he was there already at 3 in the morning and knew that Ryan was dying. And when I got there... Um, whole bunch of new people were working on my husband. They had him on emergency prone on his stomach. And uh, I didn't know who the people were. I, I felt panicked not knowing who these people were. And I could see the fear in their faces. Usually they have like a poker face you can't read. And that time I knew that something was bad happening. Uh, the nurse um, who had given me all those studies and gave my husband the first dose of the ivermectin, he came up and hugged me apologized um, saying that he couldn't believe that the hospital would revoke something that was working that he had actually uh, followed my husband's uh, chart um, and seen that he had been revoked it revoked working treatment not once but twice um, and he was just shocked to see that that's what the hospital would do and he apologized to me on behalf of the hospital and what they were doing and uh, so that he was so angry at home and telling his wife that he couldn't get over that's what was taking place inside the hospital now that he was seeing things in a different light. Um, and when I was in the room, they had told me that they were part of the good doctor's team and that they were on team Ryan. And they told me that they were uh, letting me know that they were 
that they had supported everything the good doctor had done that thus far. And I looked at the nurse to make eye contact with him because he was the only nurse I really trusted. And I wanted to know that they weren't lying to me. So I looked at him for reassurance and he had told me, um, he had smiled, gave me like a smile and nodded yes, like to reassure me that I was in good hands. Uh, but they had told me that um, Ryan was too far gone um, and his oxygen wasn't improving. And the good doctor came in and sat with us and cried and he told me that um, that we could do CPR on Ryan if he should code because he was a full code and he would respect that. But he told me that we would just be prolonging his death and not his life. Um, he apologized to me and told me that he was sorry for the resistance in the hospital on Ryan's survival. And told me that he wished he could have been able to give him a proper steroid sooner. But all he needed was a proper dose steroid and he would be with me today. And he told me um, that Ryan was a victim of horrendous medical tyranny, was his exact words. Um, and I even have hidden camera footage of these nurses admitting that they know that these protocols are letting these patients die. Uh, I looked up my rights in Michigan and found that I was a one-party state where I could actually record without their consent. And so I, once I was hearing those conversations in there almost daily, I started to wire myself to get those recordings. And so I have them on tape actually admitting that they know that these protocols are letting these patients die, but that if they don't obey orders, they'll lose their paychecks. So they're putting profit over lives. And it, they would say it to me as if I was just uh, to come to terms with that's just how it's going to be. We made a mistake to come in here. Uh, how selfish of me not to accept that if that if they don't just obey orders, they don't get their pay that, that month. Um, whereas I'm about ready to lose everything that we built in 25 years. Um, me and my husband were high school sweethearts, so we met when we were 15 and been together since. And uh, our whole lives have been stolen. I played our wedding song on my, I put my wedding song by my husband as he, we were losing him and I played our wedding song again. And I held his hand and I told him to go home and be with Jesus and to watch over me and to help me in this fight. I told him that this fight was far from over. This battle was far from over and that I would continue to be his voice and fight for him. And, um, I held his hand or held his thumb. I always held his thumb when I held his hand because of my hands being so small in comparison. So I was, I wrapped my hands around his thumb in the hospital so he knew it was me. And I held his hand and says he took his last breath. And they did, this hospital has just gotten away with destroying our lives, destroying it. I have nothing of what I used to. I literally like live in silence all day. I know that story must be absolutely horrifying to tell, and I, I don't have words <clears throat> to express my sympathy, but uh, I do know that you are a fighter. It's really obvious to me from uh, the way that you took action in the hospital to try and fight for, for the rights of your husband to, uh, to live and to uh, do as he wanted for his own health and as you wanted for his health and it takes courage to fight a system like that and and i i honor you for the efforts that you made can i ask you now how are you how well first off when did he pass how long ago has this been now it's almost eight months now uh is it eight months uh january 3rd okay 
and um, what what are you doing now uh, that you can talk about anyway in terms of uh, fighting this fight and trying to get uh, some level of justice uh, for your husband? Um, I have been doing a lot of media interviews. Um, I done. Uh, I was in a documentary along with Sarah. Um, uh, through Mickey Willis, the director, we did a document. He has a documentary coming out called Bad Medicine, where he's going to help expose what's happening with these protocols. Um, so my husband's story will be in that. And then we did a few others. Um, and I right now I've been talking with an attorney who um, ironically is actually an attorney for the Pfizer, one of the Pfizer whistleblowers. Um, mm. So um, I am actually been talking to them and uh you know, we're just seeing what we can do to move forward. Well, <clears throat> good hands with Mickey. He does excellent work. That's that's great. Um, I'm, I'm excited for that to come out. And, and yeah. one of the great things about being in one of his shows is, you know, it'll get seen, right? Yeah. Uh, he's got great exposure. So that's fantastic. Uh, what what do you feel, you know, all of I don't even sure how to ask this question. I've lost people in my life. I've never lost one in the way that you've lost uh, one. My, my brother died in a car accident when he was uh, 26 and I've lost both my parents. And so I, I know a little bit about, you know, grieving someone that you love and, uh, but I've never had somebody taken from me the way that you've had someone taken from you. Um, I mean, thank God. Uh, unfortunately in the last couple of years, this has happened way more times than people would ever care to, uh, to know or admit. Um, there's always strength available, um, in times like these, in, in, in my way of seeing the world, there's always uh, strength available. There's always things that we can learn, uh, to, to gain something out of, out of loss. Um, what do you feel, um, you've learned through this process and, and how has it, how has it changed you? Hmm. Oh gosh. That's a hard uh, question. I know. Yeah. I say learning. Oh goodness. Um, maybe I have more fight in me than I ever thought I could. My, my husband uh, was always my rock and I'm always the high anxious person. If anyone should have been on anti-anxiety meds, it'd be me. <laughs> um, so I'm always the one that was always stressed and he's the one that would always say, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And always the one calming me down. And, uh, for whatever reason, when I was in that, it was just like, you know, fight or flight mode. And there was no oh, yeah. time for even being, uh, that kind of anxious. So it was just like, it, I felt like time was of the essence all the time. Like, what are they doing to him when I'm not with him? Right. Uh, and so I, I found an inner strength, I guess, that way that I didn't know I had. Um, never been a public speaker, never was one in front of the camera or anything recording. Um, and that my whole life is now. Uh, so I, I wanted to make like the jokes. I, I grew up in a, we went both went to a private Christian school. We graduated with a class of like 35 people. And so I wanted to make the joke at one of my uh, speaking things that we've done that there was no public speaking events in high school that prepared me for this life that I'm at now. So, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's otherwise, um, gosh. And then what was the other part of that taken away from what, have, what was the other part something? Uh, well, just, yeah. What, what have you learned and, 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 uh, what strength have you found? You know, those kind of things. It's just the, the, my feeling on this is, you know, 
I'd say the strength that my husband had kind of just running through me is to keep fighting for him because he always said if they did anything shady in the hospital, if I thought that he died unjust with uh, uh, wrongfully to fight to expose it. And so I'm, I'm kind of taking his strength when I, when I do this. Awesome. Well, I, I honor you for that and, and encourage you to keep fighting. Uh, unfortunately, there's someone like you around the corner uh, that needs you to fight uh, for them uh, to you know move this forward and and expose these things for what they are. There's so much of this stuff that's happened over the last couple of years, and oh. and it certainly needs to be exposed. Which is why I do this show. Um, and I, you know, sorry, uh, I was going to say too. Uh, one thing I did forget to add, and I just so people can be aware of how much this is happening. When I was talking about that nurse coming in and saying that room 17 was fighting for their right uh, to to use their home meds and was suing the hospital. Um, after had Ryan had passed, the doctor who had wrote Ryan's home, home meds um, for the ivermectin and uh, steroid, uh, he had told me about a couple that had passed away in the same hospital just before Ryan and that I should try to go to it to show support to the family, maybe that we could talk and, um, you know, uh, be each other's support in a legal fight if we need be. And I almost didn't go, but I did end up going. And um, my husband's funeral wasn't yet, but he had passed away. But I was in the middle of an autopsy, waiting on autopsy done. And so I uh, went to their funeral, and it was a double funeral. It was a husband and wife. I died like a week or so apart. Uh, same hospital, just shortly before Ryan. And talking to the, the woman's mother, that was room 17. And then when I re-looked at my notes and I reread what that nurse had told me, that nurse had told me that they were told to get them out faster. And then that made sense then on why they had said that, because it was a husband and wife that they had worked to get out there. <sighs> okay. Well, I uh, again, I appreciate you telling your story. I know it's not easy to do. I can't imagine um, having a story like that to have to even tell. Uh, now, for those of you uh, that are... Um, listening, uh, and, and especially if you're watching, you've noticed Sarah there sitting there quietly uh, uh, listening to this story. Uh, first, let's talk, uh, let's tie the two of you together a little bit and how you, you two met, and then we'll get Sarah's story. Um, Whichever one I, of you. Okay, I was like, that. wasn't sure. <laughs> I know I had met Sarah through, uh, I when I was sitting next to my husband's bedside, um, they, uh, I had some people tell me, you need to look into this other girl named Sarah. She's on Facebook and she's, her husband's inside Beaumont and sounds just like your husband's case. And she's fighting for his survival. Mm -hmm. And so I had, uh, had a friend send me, um, her page. And so I had contacted her thinking she would probably never hear me being in this mess as well. Um, and so I just wrote to her and let her know like what I was going through and funny enough, she, she saw it and responded. So then we just kind of conversed back and forth, updating each other on our husband's status. And if we had found a doctor willing to fight. And um, I actually did find a doctor in her hospital. Uh, but at the time that we had come across him, uh, things were going pretty bad for Kyle at that time. So, but now me and Sarah, me and Sarah have kind of been like this uh, uh, power widow, <laughs> widows duo uh fighting against all this evil and trying to fight for justice for both kyle and ryan and and lots of other people awesome 
Thank you for that. Thank you, Stacy. And um, yeah, if you want to go ahead and stay on board while we get to Sarah's story and then we can wrap it up at the end. Sarah, mm-hmm. uh, thanks for your patience as I asked all those questions there. And, and I'm sure you've heard uh, Stacy's story uh, more than once. And yet I still saw you wincing a little bit too uh, during some of the moments. It's, it's hard to hear this stuff. And, and, you know, when I started this podcast, I, uh, I guess I knew what I was getting myself into, but I can't, I can't seem to get numb to these, uh, these stories that uh, folks like you have to tell. So Sarah, tell us your story. All right. It's a little hard following Stacy because you get to know these people and you know, it, 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 it's really hard hearing anybody's story, but when you know the person, it's even harder to, to be clear. I asked who wanted to go first. I know. know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bad idea. <laughs> so we all got sick about the same time as Stacy's husband. Um, so it was November seventh of twenty one is when my husband and our daughter Harper started to have like a sore throat and a cough, very mild at the beginning. And then um, a couple days later, I started getting sick. My son was kind of quarantining in his room because he didn't have any symptoms at all. Um, so a few days went by and then Kyle lost his smell and taste. So we thought, oh, well, we better get tested just to know for sure. Get prepared if we need to. So Kyle went to a local urgent care that's not affiliated with the hospital that we end up going to here in our town. And a couple of days later, came back positive. He did have COVID. So we just assumed my daughter and I also had COVID. And then about that time... Um, when we got the positive test is when I got a home pulse ox meter and also like got a bunch of supplements and vitamins and contacted um, a telehealth doctor because I had heard a little bit about um, what was going on with COVID. You know, it was still kind of new, but I had heard that very briefly about remdesivir and how it was bad and about ventilators and how like they weren't showing good results with COVID patients being put on ventilators. So I was kind of scared. So I'd heard some things from the frontline doctors. And so I called the, we called the telehealth doctor and she prescribed him ivermectin and azithromycin. So we went to the pharmacy and they filled azithromycin, the antibiotic with no problem. And then they said that they needed to talk to that doctor about filling the ivermectin. So we got them to contact them and I don't know what happened, but basically they said that it was a high dose and they weren't comfortable or they couldn't fill it. So now this time we're starting to have a lot more symptoms or, you know, lethargic, body aches. I had a rash all over my body, high fevers for days, like for weeks straight. Um, just totally tired. So we couldn't get that script. Kyle took the first dose of the zithromycin. And then we went home and rested. So then the next day, Kyle started feeling a little bit of like difficulty taking a deep breath. And I was checking his oxygen and it would range from like 84 to 94. Um, he has no medical history, does just um, sleep apnea. So he's on a CPAP machine at night. But I never really looked at his oxygen before. Um, but anyway, that's what it was ranging. So then we thought, well, we can't get this ivermectin filled and I called another local pharmacy and they couldn't fill it either so I'm like well we need something so trying to avoid the hospital because like I said I heard a little bit about things that were bad that were going on that so we made an appointment with urgent care on November 15th and so November 15th I took my husband to urgent care and um, his oxygen was 91 percent 
and they told him that he was hypoxic and they couldn't treat him and that he needed to go to the emergency room. So we were kind of scared, but still never thinking that anything was going to happen. Young, healthy. My husband's 39 years old. Um, so we got a little bit afraid. Um, they scared us a bit. And so I took him to the emergency room where they wouldn't let me in. And he waited in the ER for a little bit. But I got his medical records now. So I see when he was actually admitted to the hospital, his oxygen was 98% on room air. But he had called me later in that night when they did a, a CT and a chest X-ray. And they said that he had atypical pneumonia consistent with COVID that was shown on that chest X-ray and that the CT didn't show any blood clots. So they were going to give him oral steroids, which like Stacy had said, it's a very low dose. It was probably six milligrams every 12 hours because even later on, they were just giving him that, but through the IV. And um, they were just going to watch him for observation, but they were not continuously monitoring his oxygen. They were just spot checking it. So anyway, right from the get-go, the doctors and the nurses were talking about remdesivir, and I was still working on trying to find a pharmacy to fill the ivermectin, and it was like I was hitting a, a brick wall every everywhere, and I kind of got a little bit defeated, but um, so we refused the remdesivir, and so everything was going okay. He was getting his steroids. I asked about antibiotics. They refused to give antibiotics because they said that it was a virus and that he didn't need antibiotics. And I asked about breathing treatments and they said that they would not give him breathing treatments because it would spew COVID particles everywhere and that would put their other patients and staff at risk. I asked about ivermectin because the second day that Kyle was there, I actually got, I can't remember who got me in contact with the pharmacy that that I, a compounding pharmacy that actually filled it. So at this point I had it in my possession now and they refused uh, to give that. So then the second, the, um, the morning of the 17th, so he'd been there for two days, they were gonna discharge him home. And he called me early in the morning and said, I'm going home today. And I was, we were elated, we were so excited. We were gonna get that ivermectin when he got home, you know? And so, um, the doctor wrote his discharge and the nurse came in to do his vitals before they were going to discharge him home. And his oxygen was 88% and I wasn't allowed there for 21 days. So obviously I wasn't there at this time. And I have no idea what they said to him or scared him, but I know they threw high flow oxygen on him. We're telling him like, we're getting you ready to go to the ICU so we could watch you a little bit more closely. Cause they said they couldn't watch him close enough where he was at. And it was like all day I was sending him information about this time I was like, you know, crunching on searching for everything remdesivir, sending him all the bad things that I read and heard and, and, and like, uh, I even sent him a video from Dr. Artis and all this, but I know like he was tired. I, I honestly don't know if he read or listened to anything I sent him. Um, and I, and I told him, I was like, my, actually my friend, so I had the ivermectin, so my ISO had COVID and was very sick. So my friend met me at the hospital and I brought Kyle the ivermectin and put it inside of a Panera bag. And I was like, you need to take this and the antibiotic. I put the antibiotic in there too. And he was kind of afraid. And I'm like, no, I sent, I like looked up that there's no drug interactions with the ivermectin with anything that he was on, which was just steroids at that time. And I told him he needed to take it. So he did take one dose of ivermectin and another dose of the azithromycin, but that was days later and the first dose. 
and the, the hospital didn't know about that. But um, so I was sending him everything and then like he was really afraid. And so we were kind of having conversations about, should we try the remdesivir? And I kept telling him, I really don't feel comfortable. Like I have a really bad gut feeling about this. I'm terrified, but you need to make a decision on your own. Cause I can't live with myself if I was wrong. And um, so he decided to listen to every single person that was telling him that patients were getting it. Um, they were getting better and they were going home. So he took the remdesivir that night. So he started that and he was on remdesivir for five days. Um, so as time went on, he started requiring more and more oxygen. His white blood cell count was going up. I'm still asking about breathing treatments. I'm still asking about ivermectin. I'm still asking about antibiotics, still getting shot down from everything. So then um, it was, I just remember the day before Thanksgiving, Kyle was feeling like really good. And we thought, oh, maybe we, you know, we dodged a bullet on this remdesivir thing. And, you know, he's feeling better. He's, he's going to turn the corner and we're, we're, he's going to get home. We were video chatting like all day. I even went to the store. I got him a fan. I got him chocolate pudding because he wanted chocolate pudding. And um, like we were chatting all day and I brought it up to him. They wouldn't let me and I dropped it off for him. But then it was um, that night he was telling me, um, that he, he was having this pain in his like upper chest and his back and the nurse just gave him Tylenol and chalked it up to, uh, maybe him pulling a muscle or straining something. Cause the monitors were like behind him. So like continuously looking behind him to look at the monitors. So that's what they chalked it up to and just gave him Tylenol. So the next day was Thanksgiving and, um, we, I went to his dad's and his mom came over and we were video chatting for a little bit, but he just seemed like he was a little bit defeated. He seemed a little more, he said he had a bad night and he, he was not breathing as well as he was. And so um, we didn't chat very long, but got to see the kids and everything. And um, then the next morning, I don't know if his action dropped or if they just happened to do a chest x-ray, but they did an x-ray and it showed that he had a small hole in his lung or a pneumothorax. And right after that, I was calling around talking, I need to see my husband. Things have changed. Things are getting more critical. I, I need to get in there. Why can't I see my husband? Um, at this time, I'm feeling better. I don't have COVID anymore. Um, and I, and I thought there's no way. So I called the nurses, the, the, um, charge nurses. I'm trying to get a hold of like the chief, whoever the head nurse is in the hospital. And everyone just keeps telling me the same thing. No, that he's, he's contagious with COVID and that they're not allowing visitors in. And so I talked to the attending on the phone and he told me basically that the hole in his lung was small, but it was just a matter of time before it got worse. And when it got worse, they'd have to put it in a chest tube and they'd have to put it on a ventilator. And I was like, what do you mean? That doesn't necessarily mean he has to go on a ventilator. So once again, I called the hospital. This is what the doctors are telling me. I want to see my husband. We never talked about these things. Like we're young. I mean, I didn't, didn't have like, a, we didn't have wills. We didn't have power of attorney, anything like that. I was like, I need to talk to my husband. I need to talk to my husband face to face. And they, they told me, ma'am, your husband is stable and I'm sorry, but you cannot come up here and, and visit. So they still refused. Well, then later in that day, 
the hole got worse. They ended up putting in a chest tube, but he didn't have to go on a ventilator. So I was still afraid. And I drove up to the hospital, called again, and told them, again, I want to see my husband. I'm here in the parking lot. I just drove 45 minutes to get here. I need to see my husband. And they still refused. So I just sat in the parking lot. And uh, my friend, the same one that helped me get the medication to him, came. And we both sat in the parking lot. And we texted Kyle. And I told him, they're not letting us up there. But we're sitting here. We're going to be with you. So you're not alone. And um, so my kids were on break for Thanksgiving. And the next morning, I was getting someone to watch my kids. And they called me like early, 9, 8 or 9 a.m. and said that they'd been resuscitating Kyle all night. His oxygen keeps dropping. And I said, so what are they doing? And they keep, they've told me this multiple times throughout this process that the COVID is just getting worse. Um, so I need to get up there. And I'm like, I'm on my way. And um, they, so they, uh, I went up there and um Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> I went up. No, I'm sorry. They, I got to backtrack because that was wrong. I'm sorry. They called me and said they, um, that his auction was dropping and that they needed to put him on a ventilator to save his life. That's, this was, that was a different time. I'm sorry. So that right after Thanksgiving, that's when they told me his auction was dropping. It was staying in the 80s and that the only thing they could do was to put him on a ventilator to save his life. And so... Um, I was caught off guard and, and afraid and they held the phone for me to talk to Kyle and I said, I love you. And he said, I love you. And I said, don't be afraid. And I said, I love you. And he said, I love you again. And that's the last time I talked to my husband and they sedated him, heavily sedated him, paralyzed him and put him on the ventilator. After that, they actually did let me go up there. Um, once he was paralyzed and sedated, but they only let me be there for 15 minutes. And I had to gown up and everything. So then around this time, um, I was researching more and more every single day. And I come across a case of a patient that got ivermectin and a lawyer from New York, Ralph Larigo, um, helped fight for this patient who was on a ventilator. And they were telling him that like, or his family that he was going to die. And they fought in court and won and got him to got them to force the hospital to give ivermectin. So he got the ivermectin and he survived. So I'm like, I'm going to get that lawyer. We're going to, we're going to keep fighting. I'm, I'm going to go up beyond these people. No matter what I say, they don't listen to me. So, um, so I was in the process of getting that lawyer and then a lawyer here in Michigan. So then they originally had told me that he was going to be on the ventilator for like, I think it was two or three to five days that his body needed a rest. They told me the same thing that, you know, they told Stacy. Um, so a little bit of part of me, like, believe them because I was trying to like keep hope. Like, how could they, you know, we need, we have to trust them. What, what else do we do? So I was trying to trust them, but it was very hard for me with everything that was going on, but I was trying to stay positive. And so anyway, um, th that, uh, even before he was put on the ventilator, I failed to mention this. Um, as I told you prior, he was tested at urgent care, but in the hospital, he was never tested for COVID. 
So when I was trying to fight to get in there to see him, I told him, I said, you never even tested him for COVID, yet you gave him all the whole course of remdesivir and you're treating him in isolation like a COVID patient, but he couldn't be negative at this point. And so the attending kind of fought with me, but they tested him. Um, unfortunately, did still come back positive. Who knows how good those tests are anyway with all the information that's coming out but they never tested him in the hospital my point is that they never tested him in the hospital until after he already had the five days on their death um remdesivir protocol so then um it was december 2nd they finally tested his sputum and did a culture and showed like i told them was going to happen viral pneumonia turned to bacterial pneumonia so it was weeks later when they finally tested it and started him on antibiotics. And in my opinion, uh, I think a lot of damage to his lungs was because they refused to treat that pneumonia. So it just got worse. Um, so there was that. Um, I also was asking about ECMO um, because I had heard a little bit about that. And they said that they would look into it, but I never heard anything back really at that point. I asked about a trach same kind of thing kind of just blew me off and said yeah well hopefully he's gonna be getting off the vent soon and so they kind of just moved that over um and then on december 6th they removed his covid precaution so i was able to come visit and be with him uh every day for 12 hours and it was right about that time when i was also trying to contact the ethics committee um like a patient's rights um, representative or something like that patient advocate which basically they told me didn't exist and I had to either file a former complaint or talk to the chief medical officer so I emailed the chief medical officer because I'm a registered nurse and I work for the hospital system although I worked at a different facility uh, that my husband was at and I worked in labor and delivery but I knew how to get a hold of somebody if I couldn't get them by phone so I emailed her and told her I had an urgent matter I need to talk to her about my husband's care so it just how, so happened to be that first day that I was in there that she called me. And um, I talked to her about the ivermectin. I talked to her about my husband's care, them refusing to do things, what had happened thus far. Um, I talked to her about how I found out that ivermectin was a second line treatment for COVID patients um, on the NIH's website. And she blatantly said to me, what's the NIH? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like the National Institute of Health. You don't know what that is. Well, that's terrifying. And she told me, no, that's not on there. That's not true. And things were kind of getting a little bit heated because I'm, I'm very frustrated at this point with everything that's going on. And um, so we had a couple words and she hung up the phone on me. And so that was really professional. And I also talked to the ethics committee and um, told him that I had studies that I found. Um, I've been following the frontline doctors. I've heard all these testimonials about ivermectin, how it's helping. Why aren't we doing, trying these other things with my husband at this point? I want to try any and any and everything that will help, you know, try to save my husband. And he, he fed me the bull crap of basically that the studies that I was reading were skewed and that people were taking like whatever high high dose ivermectin and that people were getting liver failure and i'm like this is a nobel peace 
prize winning drug. And, and just like any medication, if you take a high dose of it, you, you can overdose on it. But this is virtually like has no drug interactions. I said, I've read up now on so much about remdesivir. It causes 53 to 54%. I think patients go into kidney failure and it was stopped in the Ebola trials because it killed so many people. It increased the risk of death and mortality. And I said, you're worried about giving him something that may harm him, yet you, you, you guys were also adamant in our faces telling us basically that if he didn't take remdesivir, that you didn't know what was going to happen to him or essentially that he could die. So you scared him into that. And now it's not like I'm asking you to put toothpaste down his tube. I have doctors that are backing me, wrote these scripts. Um, telling me that he needs these medications, I want my husband to get it. And so he said that he will not support the use of trying ivermectin, even though I thought we had the, we were under the impression that we had right to try. And I also went to court at this time too, to get um, emergency guardianship in um, our county because we didn't, I didn't have power of attorney. So I, if I was going to go to court and try to fight for him to get ivermectin, I had to get that. So I knew like what my rights now were for my husband. And he said that, no, the doctors would have to agree to whatever I was presenting. And there wasn't like a mutual agreement. And the doctor that prescribed the ivermectin wasn't the doctor that was caring for him. So he was going to stand behind the treatment team at the hospital and refuse to treat with any other medications outside of their protocol or their standard of care. And they were going to stick to the standard of care. They weren't going to give him anything that would harm him. That was basically their argument because they were trying to say that ivermectin would harm him. So then, anyway, um, it was December 13th is when his kidney lab started to go bad. So it was a couple days later. I mean, a couple weeks after he got remdesivir. And so they put in a, a port and a central line and they started him on dialysis. And then, um, let's see, I'm sorry. Okay, so after Christmas, it was December 7th, or 27th and they called me, this is where this happened. They called me and said they had been, they had to take him off the vent to manually resuscitate him because his action was dropping really low so many times and I need to get up there. And so I said, should I bring my mother-in-law and father-in-law? They said, yes. So we all went up there and they called me at like nine o'clock in the morning and I had to get care for my kids because they were off for school for Christmas. And it's like a 45 minute drive. So I arrived, finally got to the hospital uh, around 10:45 or 11 a.m. So almost a couple hours later, and I get to his bedside, and his action was like 36 or 37 percent, and they had him on the ventilator again, so nobody was doing anything, and the nurse was in there, and I said, "Where surgery?" Because they had called me when I was on the way there and said they found another hole in his lung, another pneumothorax, and they had to put in a, another chest tube. So I'm on my way. So like I said, when I got there, that still wasn't done. So I asked the nurse, where's surgery? And she said, they're on their way. You know, they're coming. And I'm like, they need to come now. You know, I'm frantic, freaking out. I thought this is when we were going to lose Kyle. And so surgery comes. They, he's all nonchalant, taking a sweet time, trying to explain to me what they're about to do. I'm like, no, just do it. Like he's been, his action has been low for I don't know how long. So I'm outside crying. The chaplain comes, talks to me my um, my in-laws were waiting because they were doing the bedside procedure. Uh, so I was the only one there at that time. And then so they got done and right away his action went up to like 75. And then it started going up and up and up from there. So we're like, okay, we dodged another bullet. 
So my in-laws came in and um, we were just there for a while with Kyle. He seemed to be doing better. Uh, his action was back up into the 90s. And so it was getting later in the evening. And um, my mother-in-law was just with me at that time. So I stepped out of the room and I asked the nurse, I said, can, cause it was like kind of chaotic that day and crazy. And actually I heard a family earlier in the day screaming like bloody murder because something like something bad was happening with their loved one also. And I just remember, like, I'll never forget. They were screaming murderers that like the hospital was murdering their family member, um, which I see is happening so often now, but that was terrifying. So I asked the nurse, can we shut the door, pull the curtain? We just want to pray with Kyle. It's been like a really long, stressful day. We just need to pray. want to pray over him before we head home. And she said, yeah. And um, so anyway, we did that. And so we were praying over Kyle and like one minute and the nurse comes and pops in and pulls the curtain and she's like, hey, um, just checking in here. And we're like, uh, I just like asked your permission or told you so that you wouldn't think, you know, you know what was going on when we were pulling the curtain and stuff. Um, and she's like, I just want to make sure nothing funny was going on. And we're like, okay, I told you we were leaving. So, okay, we'll be out of here soon. So then she left and, um, his vitals were fine and everything. So there's no reason for her to come in there. So it happened to be, um, the next day that my lawyer here in Michigan called me and he said that they had like the preliminary hearing or something with the attorney and then the hospital Beaumont's team of attorneys or representatives. And there was a note in the chart, which was hidden from me that, cause I was checking Kyle's chart like continuously, like all the time, every five minutes. But I didn't see this note because you can, apparently there's like a hidden feature. Um, but there was a note in the chart saying that the nurse was suspicious of mine, my mother-in-law's um, behavior. And she thought that I was giving Kyle ivermectin myself. So when they went to the hearing, the lawyer and the judge heard that from the hospital's team and their ruling was to stop me from proceeding. I could have start all over, but I have to find new lawyers and everything, which at this point he's already got in his mind, his opinion of what's going on you know it'd be the same judge and that i had to hand over all the ivermectin that i had um to the attending physician so i did and um i also forgot to mention that that's that day before when all that stuff was happening i asked to talk to talk about ecmo again in a trach and they had the ECMO representative or the doctor who deals with that come in and he told me that my husband didn't qualify because he was obese and that he had been on a ventilator for greater than 10 days and that he was in kidney failure and I lost on him because I said you guys put him on a ventilator and no one wanted to address this sooner than now and you put him in kidney failure because you guys told him that he needed to take remdesivir or he would die basically and we didn't want that, but you talked him into it. You scared and bullied him into it. And then his obesity is a big fat bull crap because my husband, excuse you. Um, my husband was like a very like fit guy. Um, so I don't believe my husband was obese, but whatever. And I was just really upset. I've been crying all day. And I said, 
if you were really interested in saving lives, it's obvious to me that you're not because you just check your boxes on your criteria. And my husband is a 39 year old man who has no medical history besides sleep apnea before we walked in this hospital. And now all of a sudden he has all this exclusion criteria said, you don't care about human lives then. You're just here to do your job and you're not here to save lives if you wouldn't even be willing to try. And my mask was like sliding down a little bit. And he, all he said to me was, ma'am, can you just pull your mask up? And I I told him basically, I was screaming at him and told him to get the F out of my husband's room. So um, the note, yeah, I'll admit that, but the note that that nurse wrote also says that I was verbally abusive to the staff. And I'm like, okay, I'll own that. But it was whatever. <sighs> so then when I heard about that and them like stopping me from proceeding, it's kind of like Stacy's story. It's crazy hearing this stuff because it's like the lengths that they went to looking back shortly after that, I was like, this was all just to incriminate me and stop me from trying to help save my husband. It's just mind boggling. Like the lengths that these people went to or went through, you know? Um, so then it was a few weeks, you know, within the next few weeks, uh, Kyle was getting dialysis and he was still heavy on sedation and they'd try to wean and sometimes they would wean him off, but then I would leave. And sometime for some reason at nighttime, by the time I came back in the morning, he was like back on full vent support, full everything. It was like this, this circle of him never being able to get off of a sedation because anytime they would lower the sedation to a certain point, he would, what they would say, fight against the vents. Um, so he'd be like breathing over the vent as you know, like what your body naturally does. And then he would kind of hold his breath and then his oxygen would drop. So they just gave him more meds, more sedation, more stuff that actually um, makes it harder for, it depresses your respirations and your, your body's drive to breathe. So they just kept on, you know, compiling that more and more. Um, one doctor had sat me down, had kind of like a heart to heart conversation with me. And, you know, he, he just, he was a really kind doctor, but kind of had the tough situation, you know, the talk, tough talk with me about what was going on. I understand, but I'm like, we're going to, we're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep trying, you know? And then I saw that night that he put in the note that I should, he didn't talk to me, but I should consider making my husband a DNR. And I was like, mm -mm. so I called the hospital and talked to the nurse. And I said, my, I just want to make this crystal clear. You tell everybody, my husband is a full code. We are not going to make him a DNR at this time. And I don't like the doctor put that in his chart without even mentioning it to me. Um, so he's like, got it. Okay, great. So the next, every week there was a new attending doctor. So then I remember like the next week, um, another attending came on and he like took me to conference room and was having a hard conversation with me again. I understand they have to do that. And pretty much told me that I should think about my husband's dignity and that um, when was all this too much? And when was I basically going to give up on my husband? And I was like, I don't even want to have this conversation right now. Once again, my husband will not be a DNR. He is a full code. I don't care about what you think about dignity, but dignity to me doesn't mean anything if you're dead. And it sounds like you're trying to give up on my husband and I'm not interested in giving up on my husband. I'm a fighter. My husband is a fighter. I would know what my, my husband would want me to fight for him. So we're going to keep going. And so that was the end of that conversation. But then again, I checked his chart and he, that doctor had contact the ethics committee behind my back 
And my interpretation, which I'm happy to provide it to anybody, is that they were contacting ethics to see when it would be medically appropriate to refuse, um, withhold, or withdraw any treatment for my husband. So I lost it again. And I called the ethics guy back, and he's, he's a real winner, that one. And I said... I don't understand what's going on here. I made it crystal clear what, what I want to do. Um, you know, this is Kyle's death is going to be up to God. This is not up to you people. We're going to keep on doing everything that we can do to try to save him. I mean, I've asked every single doctor once again about trying different things. Um, nobody's interested in trying anything differently. Uh, so I felt really, really, really defeated at this point. Um, and then actually at the beginning of January, I have written down my notes, January 3rd, they actually were able to get Kyle's ventilator, uh, the, the FiO2, so the, the settings down. So it seemed like he actually, we actually thought that we were turning a corner and he was starting to get better. They were starting to wean down the vents. And then what happened in the next couple of days was he got another hole in his lung. And so they had to put another chest tube and that chest tube was like bleeding a lot right from the beginning and they tried to re-suture it and they were like even suctioning into it because the blood was clotting. I don't know why it was like bleeding so much because the other ones hadn't. And I'd asked and they said, well, it's probably because we went through a muscle and so there's more, you know, bleeding at the, in that part of the body. So he's bleeding a lot. They were suctioning inside his body cavity, suctioning out clots they were saying that the chest tube was working well well then his blood pressure started dropping he'd been getting blood transfusions because his his blood cell count was like dropping and there's whole other things but i'm trying to stick to the most you know pertinent things to the story but um so he got blood transfusions he was getting more blood transfusions now that he was bleeding and then he started to require more on the ventilator again so it was like he was getting worse again then his temperature was really, really low and they were giving him like a warming device and then warmed fluids. And so it was the day before he passed uh, when I started seeing all these like signs that were abruptly different. And I said, do you think there's an infection? And um, I said, Can, are they going to do cultures? He could be septic. Um, they've been non-sterily just suctioning up inside of his lungs his body cavity like in street clothes he could have an infection and if he's septic he's gonna go fast because he's very critically ill right now and the the residents were like no we don't think so because his blood work doesn't show that and i'm like when are you gonna do a culture and you guys thought he had an infection two weeks ago and you started antibiotics but now they were refusing to give him antibiotics because of his kidneys and I'm like, he can get a kidney, kidney transplant. I'll give him my, my kidney if he makes it through this. Please just start him on antibiotics. And they're like, no, we don't think it's infection, but I'm going to talk to infectious disease. They did still refuse antibiotics. So uh, basically once um, his blood pressure was getting low and so they were starting him on blood pressure medications, which the whole time he wasn't. Besides, he did go on AFib a couple times. But anyway, this was like from him being hypotensive. So they're starting him on pressors. And then with his temperature and them not giving him antibiotics and him requiring more oxygen, I'm like asking the nurses and the doctors, I'm like, what is it about this that you don't think that there's something changed? And they basically just said, it's the COVID getting worse. Once again, that was their answer for me. 
And so that night when I went home, I, we kind of prepared ourselves that it was going to be soon. Um, and so they called me at like 2 a.m. and told me I need to get there, that his action was dropping. Um, so the doctor that was there like went over some crazy high like vent settings and um, he was doing a little bit better, but they asked me when I was on the phone on the way there, they said, if he codes, do you want us to do CPR? And I was like, yes, at this time I want them to do CPR. So we get there and his action is like in the sixties or seventies, but it was, it came up, it, it went up and we stayed the whole rest of the night. And in the morning, um, his, his blood pressure was like really low. It was like fifties over thirties. And he was on at this point now four blood pressure medications. And that night after I, the previous night after I left, they actually started him on antibiotics. So I'm like, okay, now sure. Um, but like their last ditch effort, they were giving him antibiotics too late once again. And, um, so anyway, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law were there, but at the time Kyle passed, my mother-in-law was just there because my father-in-law left. And I asked, the nurse had asked me, do you want me to, uh, do you want to help give him a bed bath? So I did. And I bawled the entire time. And um, then I asked for the chaplain to come in so we could pray with him again. And my mother-in-law went to the bathroom and the chaplain came in and I said, can you just wait a minute? And as soon as my mother-in-law came in the room, he started crashing his blood pressure and his oxygen and pulse all like went down and the nurse called the code, pulled the code button, jumped on his chest and started doing CPR. And my mother-in-law and I, everyone came in, my mother-in-law and I just kind of grabbed each other and went in the hall and we were crying. And um, one of the nurses came up to me and she said, um, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep doing this? She said, I told you before because she had Kyle before. And she said, he's made it longer than anyone does here he fought this hard for you. His body just can't fight anymore. And you're just prolonging his death and doing more damage. If we do CPR, he's not going to, he's not going to come back from this. So we went in the room and I asked the attending who was a new doctor that day. And, um, he said, I said, what would you do? I don't know what to do. And he said, he said, I would tell them to stop because he's on all this medication, all these vent settings. He's never going to make it through this so we told them to stop and they stopped and shut everything off and everyone left the room and he was paralyzed and sedated when he passed and it was immediate and that was that was pretty much it besides a lot of other details it would take a very long time to tell but those are the main points well, once again, I, uh, I'm sorry to make you relive it once again, but, uh, I do believe that your desire to tell this story is important and, and that, uh, it, there is good to come out of these stories, um, people hearing these stories and fighting for the rights of patients in this country and, and being far more aware, uh, about what's actually going on in some cases in, in these hospitals and, especially throughout COVID, which yeah. was just an absolute nightmare mm -hmm. uh, for so many people like yourselves.
Uh, so I'm going to ask you the same question, Sarah, same couple of questions. What are you doing now? It sounds like you're doing a lot of interviews. Uh, anything else that you're doing in this fight at the moment uh, that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, um, just basically the same thing, like Stacy said, just trying to get out there as much as possible and spread the word about what's going on. Hopefully, you know, if it will change one person's outcome you know, then I guess I've done my job. It's like, I've never thought I'd ever be doing this. I hate talking in front of people. I even hate doing this. Um, but like, I know it has to be done. I know this is what I have to be doing. I just feel like I've been called to this out of this tragedy to try to try to help because honestly, I, I don't know what else to do with myself or, you know, I have to, we're here. We have to keep going. You know, a part of me died with my husband. It did. I'm not the same person, but I have kids. And, um, I have to, how many kids do you have, Sarah? Two kids. They're two. 14 and six. How are they doing? They seem to be okay. You know, they're kind of getting used to me crying off all the time for no reason well I, there's a reason but uh i mean they're yeah. doing okay i think they they have a lifetime ahead of them you know a lot of things i'm sure that they'll have to deal with the other kids their age don't have to deal with but um we stacy and i both have been to a couple of events where we spoke at and um there's another one that the nurse freedom network um, is doing in October in Orlando, Florida. So we'll both be there. I'm going to be speaking as a nurse and a victim and Stacy obviously is a victim. Um, so just those kind of things. Um, I've got a new job because I couldn't go back to the hospital. I tried, it was horrific. I just, I can't be a part of that anymore. Um, so now I'm working for a holistic doctor. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm sure it gave you a massive shift in how you oh, yeah. saw things in the hospital system. Yeah, I never imagine. knew like any of this. I'd heard little things um, before, but my eyes have been peeled wide open now and you can't just like close your eyes after seeing all this. Yeah. There's no going back. You can't unsee it, mm -mm, can you? No. Stacy, do you have kids? Uh, no, we were going to try uh, start having a family this summer. Um, so now being a... a my mid forties now, uh, uh, we, uh, there's, that won't be in the cards for me. Uh, it's another thing that the hospital had stolen from both of us. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, what would you say, and, and I'll leave either one of you that wants to answer or both. Um, what would you say those listening to a program like this, hearing these stories, what would you encourage that person to do? For me, uh, we need more whistleblowers. We need some healthcare workers to start being brave enough to speak out. Uh, learn your rights in your state um, as far as uh, recordings go. Uh, most states are a one-party state. Uh, I don't care what the hospital rules are. Those don't trump your rights. And there are whistleblower protection laws in place for a reason. And they took an oath to do no harm. So when there is harm being done, it is their duty to report it and expose it. Uh, we need more um, healthcare workers doing that. And we need more victims speaking out because you get a lot of people speaking out on remdesivir and a lot on the uh, vaccine injuries. But we need more people speaking out on these protocols so that we can bring this to justice. Otherwise, Otherwise, silence is compliance, 
and uh, they're just as guilty when they remain quiet and let this continue. Um, and uh, I believe before too long, there's going to be justice one way or another. And I, if I was a healthcare worker, I would not want to be standing uh, before their maker uh, with a lot of blood on their hands. Yeah, I agree. And silence is compliance. Mm-hmm. Is something I have said a lot over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. We've, we've all got to speak up and, and it doesn't really matter what somebody thinks of what you have to say. It matters that it needs to be said. So, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I would 100% echo the fact that we need more people from the inside, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know, inside the hospital system, uh, coming out and speaking out about this, that those who were brave enough to do so have made a really, really big difference. Uh, you know, the frontline doctors that you mentioned, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, Sarah, anything from you that you would encourage people to do? Basically just the same thing. Like I've had, um, people that I know that are nurses, obviously that have like messaged me privately. Um, this happened to my loved one, or I see this happening, but I, you know, I'm not going to be giving those meds. I'm refusing to give those meds and, and maybe me telling my story has prevented that. But then I think people need to take it a step further because we need the whistleblowers. We need the people on the inside. Yeah. Okay. I commend you for not going you're not pushing those drugs, but also you're there in that environment. And if everyone stood up together, how are they going to run the hospital without the nurses or the doctors? Right. If you know what's going on, you're a part of it. I'm sorry. Like, like, like you said, silence is com- complicit. Um, and, yeah. and we need more people to stand up and together. Like we, we can't do this fight alone. There's, there's a, this goes to a higher level and we need as many people as we can to stand together. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you both so much taking your time uh, and uh, bringing out uh, these the, the emotions that come uh, so clearly with telling these stories. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before I let you go? I don't think so, but just uh, um, appreciate you taking the time to let us both tell our story because this is something that has to be told as hard as it is to keep reliving it, but it's something, whether we're reliving it on some kind of uh, media platform, but me and Sarah both relive this daily in our, in our heads, you know, that we have severe PTSD from this. Um, so it's not no different except for just being speaking out publicly so that it can protect others. Uh, but this is something, um, especially at nighttime for me, uh, it just, you relive it over and over. Um, and there has to be justice for these people, uh, not just uh, my husband and Kyle, but there's so many of us, so, so many. Um, and so we have to have justice for all the victims out there and all the future ones. So this has to be a voice for, for the people that are preparing to go into the hospital, that they know what to fight off and what to prepare for. I 100% agree. And for those of you uh, listening, wondering what you can do, maybe the the, the simplest thing is to share uh, this podcast, share these stories so that people, you know, one of the things that I think is really common, and I'm sure the two of you could could, uh, speak on this, is people like you, especially in the early going anyway, feeling like you're alone or there aren't a Mm -hmm. bunch of people out there like this. And then as you start to kind of network out through social media or through friends of friends or whatever it is, you start to find out, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of people this has happened to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, I think the general public that has not been exposed to this personally, like you have, 
um, they do think that these are rare stories, that this isn't happening all the time, mm-hmm. that there aren't thousands and thousands and thousands of people affected by mm-hmm. it. Um, sharing these stories, if you're listening now, sharing a podcast like this is one way that you can get uh, in front of people. And as people start to hear more and more of these stories, uh, they'll recognize that it's a way bigger problem uh, than maybe they thought it was. And, and maybe they will actually stand up and do something. So mm-hmm. so I appreciate your strength. Um, Stacy, Sarah, if, if there's anything that... Uh, that I can do uh, to help you spread the word, please let me know. And um, for those of you listening, thank you for taking the time. I know these stories aren't easy to listen to. It's no fun to listen to somebody tell about their, uh, uh, you know, injury or their, uh, the death that they've experienced. Um, but it takes a certain kind of person to be willing to put in this kind of uh, effort to, to listen, to share, and to expose these things to the public. So I appreciate all of you for what you're doing. And thank you for joining us. Thank you.